0: Genesis chapter 3, and I'm reading the whole chapter. From verse 1. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it. Or you will die. You will not certainly die, the, sna- the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they, real- they realised that they were naked. So they sewed big leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the snake deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the snake, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire would be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all, all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword, flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word to us.
1: Well, good morning. Uh, it's great to be here this morning. I'm a member of Silver Street's um, community Church. My name is Nick, and I also work for London City Mission with a, a focus on reaching uh, the Muslim community. Um, before we start, let's pray, and then we'll dig into God's Word. Yeah. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for your Word, and uh, we pray that you would help us uh, to have a an enlarged view of our Lord Jesus this morning. Please, would we fall in love with Him? Uh, more than we do at the moment. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So please do have your Bibles open. Um, We're going to actually look at a few um, verses uh, in Genesis 1 and 2 and in 3 as well. But I never forget my first encounter with someone from a Muslim background. I'd recently become a Christian. I got a taste for evangelism. And uh, up in Enfield, I used to see uh, this Muslim guy being pushed in a wheelchair by his wife. Um, one day I got chatting to him and it turned out that he was, um, he was from Morocco. His name was Mohammed, and he had become a paraplegic uh, following a diving accident when he was a teenager back in Morocco. Got chatting with him, he invited me round for tea and um, I, I would visit him on a number of occasions. And uh, obviously as a new Christian with a taste for evangelism, telling others about Jesus, Uh, It wasn't long before the conversation turned to spiritual things. And I never forget this one thing that he said to me. He said, I'm a Muslim, and as a Muslim, I love Jesus. And I love Jesus even more than Christians do. Wow, I couldn't believe what he said. But it turns out that this is actually a common view um, among those from a Muslim background. If you head down to uh, Four Streets on a Friday You'll see some guys from a local mosque with a book table and on the front of the book table it says, we love Jesus because we are Muslim. But is this true? Who is this Jesus um, that Muslims claim to love? The problem is that even a superficial understanding of the teachings of the Bible and of the Quran revealed that the Jesus of each respective faith are quite different. Uh, the Quran, while it seems to have quite a high view of who Jesus is, it makes two fundamental errors. Um, the first is historical, and the second is theological. First, they say that Jesus didn't die. Okay, there was a crucifixion, but it wasn't him. It was someone else to, made, to look like him. That's the big historical error they make about Jesus. The theological error is that they say, well, Jesus isn't the son. He's not the son of God. He neither begets nor is begotten. He has no partners. He is exalted above having a son. So all this stuff about Jesus being God, say Muslims, well, that's just something Christians made up hundreds of years after the fact. So they deny his sonship and they deny his sacrifice. And so to claim to love Jesus while at the same time denying who he is and rejecting his very purpose of being on earth is misguided at best. Um, And actually, if you think about it, it's a huge insult. It's like me saying about Luke. You know, I love Luke more than anybody else. But did you know that Luke is JJ's grandmother? Did you know that? And do you know that as a day job, Luke is a dustman? Not that there's anything wrong with being a dustman, but um, if I said that, you would rightly conclude that I either don't know anything about Luke, or I hate him, or, you know, trying to spread lies about him, or I've lost the plot. Now, many of us have, uh, have Muslim friends and neighbours at work or school, and we know they are very sincere in their, in their beliefs, but our desire is to make Christ known to them, the real Jesus. So here's the question. If you are chatting with your Muslim friend and you start to talk about spiritual things, where would you go in the Bible to show, to show them that Jesus is both Lord and Saviour? Now there are many places we can go in the New Testament. John chapter 1 is a good example. Jesus is the Word, the Word of God who is God. through whom all things came into being and later on in the chapter it says that he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world he's Lord and Saviour and there are many other places that we can go the New Testament is full of passages and and verses that show Jesus is both Lord and Saviour but what about the Old Testament? if Jesus really is Lord, uncreated, eternal where can we go in the Old Testament to see that he is both Lord and Saviour? Well, there are places we could go maybe in in, in Isaiah, in the Psalms. We could look at the prophecies about him. But I thought it would be interesting this morning just to take a look at the first few chapters of Genesis. Uh, It's not somewhere we'd normally think of turning to to do a study on the person of the Lord Jesus. But I want to show us this morning that the Bible from beginning to end shows that Jesus is both Lord and Saviour. And the aim of this morning really is just to spend a few minutes just enjoying Jesus, that we might fall more uh, in love with him as we're reminded of who he is. Um, But at the same time, my prayer is that we'll be reminded that, you know, sharing the gospel with Muslims is so important, even if it can be a huge challenge. So I hope that we're going to be stirred as we start this new year to be thinking about how we can reach our community, especially the Muslim community. So the first thing I want us to see from um, these first few chapters of Genesis is that Jesus is our creator. Have a look at the first few verses of of chapter 1. This is how the Bible starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. The first few verses of the Bible. And the first verse, it gives us a foundation for all that's to follow. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now interestingly, even here in the first sentence of the Bible... We have something really interesting. We have one God who created all things, but yet a plurality of, of persons. I don't, you may not know anything about the Hebrew language, but the word there for God is the Hebrew word Elohim. And the word Elohim is a plural word, literally God's. However, the verb in the sentence And a verb, if you don't know, is is the doing word, is in the singular. And in Hebrew, these two things don't normally come together. And actually, this idea plays out in the following verses. So later on, or just in these few verses, you have God who creates all things. And in verse 2, we see God's spirit who is hovering over the the waters. And then in verse 3, we see his word through whom all things came into being. One God, but three persons. And it shouldn't be a surprise then that in, in verse 26, um, that God says, as he, as, he, as he creates humanity, as God creates humanity, he says, let us make mankind in our image. Not let me, let us. Let us, the Lord, Father, Son and Spirit, creating mankind in his own image. Now Muslims claim that the the Trinity was something created by Christians several hundred years after after Jesus uh, was on the earth. But actually we see the shape of the Trinity right here in the very earliest verses of the Bible. Then as we uh, dig into uh, chapter 2, things get even more interesting, especially when we focus in on the person of Jesus. I don't know if you remember life before remote controls. Um, it was always a hassle, wasn't it? To you know, you're watching TV and you want to change the channel. You have to get up, sit down, change. You know, get up again to change the channel. Thankfully, there was only four channels um, back in the day. Uh, it'd be horrible, wouldn't it, today if there was like 400 channels and you kind of have to get up every time you want to change channel. But actually, reading Genesis chapter one, we could be tempted to think that that's how God creates all things remotely from a distance. From afar. But actually, as we, as we dig into uh, chapter 2, as we zoom into the creation story, God seems to create not from afar, but from up close. So let's read uh, from verse 4 in chapter 2. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Skip to verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils and the breath of life, He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So here the Lord creates Adam, but it seems not from afar but from up close, from the dust of the ground, presumably using his hands and breathing life into his nostrils. And that's not something you can do from a distance, especially with face masks on. Then in verse 8, the Lord plants a garden and puts Adam there. Verse 19, he forms wild animals and birds from the ground and brings them to Adam. And in something even more amazing, verse 21, Eve is created from one of Adam's ribs. And again, the language here is physical. It's the Lord doing this. Again, presumably using his hands as he performs the first operation and creates Eve. Now, at this point, it's, it's good to take a step back and, and ask the question, well, who is this in the garden doing the work of creation? We know from, from John's Gospel, from John 1.18, that it says, no one has ever seen God. And by this, I assume that John is referring to the triune God as a whole. He is a spiritual being, unseen. It's impossible to see the Trinity in all its fullness. John goes on to say that the spirit is unseen, Uh, you hear its sound but you cannot tell where it comes from or where he he goes. Later on in John 6, Jesus states that no one has seen the Father except the one who is from God, only he, Jesus speaking of himself, only he has seen the Father. So who is this in the garden doing the work of creation? It can't be the Father can't be the spirit, although they are intrinsically involved in all that happens. But it must be Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, as he somehow comes down into the garden physically and is seen as he creates. Now, just before... There's the TV... Just in case you think that um, I've lost the plot a little bit. Um, This this idea that where you have God appearing in visible form throughout the Old Testament, that this is Christ, was actually a view of, of early Christians and the church fathers. And here's just a few quotes. Justin Martyr says that our Christ conversed with Moses face to face. Iranius says, the scripture, Old and New Testaments, is full of the Son of God's appearing. Tertullian said, neither was it possible that God who conversed with men upon earth could be any other than that word which was to be made flesh. That's the Lord Jesus we, we thought about from John 1. And so in our minds, when our, when our minds go to verses like John 1 and And he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through him all things were made, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. John isn't coming up with some new idea. He's he's preaching Genesis. Having met that same Word who then had taken on flesh permanently, having lived among them. So that's the first thing, we see that Jesus is our creator But we also see from these early chapters of Genesis that Jesus is is judge. Now it must have been amazing for Adam and Eve being in the garden in this place with with no sin, no suffering, no coronavirus, no lockdowns. Being in perfect fellowship and relationship with God. Unfortunately we we know how things develop, we read it earlier in, in Genesis 3. Among the trees of the garden, there is one tree that defines the relationship between mankind and their creator. Let's dig into those verses again. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. The God who creates is the God who defines the moral boundaries in which we're to live. All the trees are yours. Everything is yours, except that one tree. Eat from that tree, and you would have turned your backs on me. You would have turned from life and from the giver of life to death. Where else is there to go? Sadly, in the chapter we see them doing doing the very thing they were commanded not to do. Verse 6. She, Eve, took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realised they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is one of the saddest moments in the Bible. And at this point, we know what's coming next. We should expect the creator God to step in as judge because he had said the day you eat of that tree will be the day that you die. And if we didn't know the story, maybe we would expect a booming voice to come from heaven with lightning and thunder. What have you done? You have disobeyed. You are going to die. But actually in the very next verse, we read something very different. Verse 8, The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden. The Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The same God who formed them now comes after them. The same God who drew close to give them life now draws close to judge. And with those same hands that formed them, he is about to expel them from the garden. And again, I believe that this is the the pre-incarnate Christ in the garden, walking in the cool of the day. And as Jesus pronounces the judgment of suffering and sickness and pain and death that we read about from verse 15 onwards, we we, we could imagine and we should imagine tears flowing from his eyes in the same way that he wept over Jerusalem because of their sin, because of the the sin of his people. And as he wept at the tomb of, of Lazarus, as he contemplated the effects of sin, sin that devastates our world and only results in death and separation from God. Jesus is our creator. Jesus is the judge. And as we thought earlier, Jesus is the same today, yesterday, today and forever. And the New Testament teaches us that Jesus will one day return as Lord and judge. Every knee will bow before him. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And all will have to give an account of how they've lived. Obviously there's been a lot of attention on bowing the knee in in recent months and obviously that's been a really helpful way of speaking out against racism. But one day we will all have to bow the knee before Jesus, even in love, either in love as those who love him because he first loved us or as his enemies, depending on our response to him in this life now. So my friend Mohammed, he is in for a nasty shock when he stands before the real Christ. Not the Jesus of Islam, but the Lord of history. And that's true for all of us, whoever we are. We are in for a nasty shock if we are not trusting him as Lord and Saviour. Which brings us to our third truth about Jesus. He is creator, He is judge, He is Lord, but He is also savior. One of the things that happens as Adam and Eve' sin is that they are exposed. They realized, they realize they're naked, and what do they do? They try and muster up a, a solution. I look at verse seven. The eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. What is their response to their sin? Well, it's to try and fix the problem. The sin is mine. Well, the solution has to be mine. I know I've got this, this huge amount of shame, this, this debt of sin. But surely the solution has to come from me as well. Good works to make up for it. This is basically how all man-made religion works, including Islam. But there are two fundamental problems with that approach. First is the devil. Satan, he tempted our first parents to sin, as we read at the beginning of chapter 3. And having sinned, they and all humanity were kicked out of God's kingdom and ended up bound in the kingdom of Satan. And fig leaves, no matter how well they are sewn together, cannot free us from that kingdom. We have, we, have, we have become trapped in a kingdom that we need to be rescued from. Satan needs to be defeated. And we need someone who is strong enough to do that. The other issue with the whole thing of good works is the debt of sin itself. It is a debt that needs to be paid. Fig leaves only cover up the issue. It's a bit like getting a, a bank statement and you've got a huge amount of debt. So what do you do? You grab some tipex, you tip X out the bottom line and you write in a nice, big, fat, healthy bank balance. It's not going to help you when the bailiffs come knocking at the door. However, in Genesis 3, with all its sadness and darkness, there are two amazing verses of hope that point us to the work of the Lord Jesus on the cross. And the first is verse 15. The Lord, speaking to Satan, judging Satan, says this, I, the Lord, will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He will crush your head. Who is he speaking about? Someone born of the woman will crush the, the serpent's head. That one will suffer, but Satan will be defeated. Who is he talking about? Well, there were many born of, of the woman, born of Eve. But as, as Romans uh, says, all sinned. There was no one strong enough to resist Satan and remain sinless. That is, of course, until Jesus was born of another woman, of Eve. He was tempted by Satan but didn't give in. He didn't sin. And though at the cross Satan bruised his heel as Jesus suffered and even tasted death, three days later he rose providing forgiveness to all who would trust in him, rescuing them from the kingdom of darkness. It's amazing, isn't it? The Lord God in the garden promised that a saviour would come to defeat Satan. And that saviour was the Lord God himself. But let's take a moment to reflect. Death and Satan are defeated enemies because of the cross, if you are a Christian. Because of Christ, death has no sting. And isn't that what we need to hear right in the heart of a A global pandemic. We have an amazing hope in Christ, but our Muslim friends don't have that hope. And if you talk with one of your Muslim friends or neighbours, you will realise that death for them only raises questions, uncertainty, and fear. Our Muslim friends need Jesus. They need the real Jesus. The second verse in Genesis that gives us amazing hope is verse 21. Let me read that. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. I wonder if you've noticed that verse before. It almost seems to be an incidental verse at the end of the chapter. But, But what happens here is that the Lord God in the garden makes garments for them. Remember, they've sinned and they've been exposed. Their shame is 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 burning in their hearts. And what does God do? He clothes them. But how did He do it? This is the really interesting point. He could have gathered some cotton. He could have planted some some, some cotton and and woven beautiful linen garments for them. He could have he could have got some, some sheep. And got some wool and knitted some nice woolen garments for them. That would have been nice in the cool of the day. But he didn't do that. What did he do? He made garments of skin. And to make garments of skin, an animal has to die. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. And if they're going to be forgiven, someone's going to have to die in their place. As Hebrews says later on in the New Testament, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So think of the scene in the garden. Adam and Eve are standing there with their their fig leaves, their faces a mix of, of fear and shame, and they're standing before Jesus, their creator and their judge. They know what he'd said. The day you eat of the fruit, you will die. And so they stand there with Jesus and admittedly I'm using my imagination here but I pictured Jesus standing with, with a knife in his hand. But on his, on his left maybe there's a, there's, a, there's a lamb. And imagine what, what um, Adam and Eve may have been thinking looking at the knife. Oh, we're done for. He said that if we eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil we're going to die. And now he's come and he's got a knife in his hand. We're going to die. This is the end. But maybe they're puzzled too. Why has he come with a lamb? And as Jesus raises the knife, they think that's it. They think judgment has come, but instead Jesus reaches down to the lamb, slits its throat, and blood spills out onto the ground and proceeds to make garments of skin for them. God's solution to take away their sin, to cover their shame. Of course, we know that animal sacrifices in the Bible do not take away sin but point forward to Jesus. That's the whole point. And many years later, John the Baptist will say of Jesus, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so the Jesus, the final sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice in the garden, slaughters the first sacrifice as a sign And a promise of what he will one day do on the cross. And you can imagine as as Jesus kills that, that first animal in the garden, as the blade pierces the lamb's flesh, in his mind, maybe he looks forward to one day when he will be nailed to a cross. He will be pierced, his blood will be poured out for the forgiveness of not just their sin, but of all who will trust in him throughout the ages. Only the Lord Himself could pay that price on behalf of sinners. And again, let's reflect if you are a Christian, if you are trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. Your sin has been taken away, you have been clothed. Whatever you have done, whatever sin lies in your past or your present, or in your future, has been paid for by Jesus. Of course, we don't, we don't sin as much. We don't just keep sinning. Because Jesus wants to change us. The Lord wants to change us and make us more into his likeness. But what an amazing salvation we have in Christ. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And again, our Muslim friends, this is what they need to understand. This is what Edmonton needs to understand. Fig leaves do not take away sin. Good works do not take away sin. Only Jesus who died in the place of sinners. What an amazing saviour we have in the Lord Jesus. Well, thankfully, as we were reflecting earlier, 2020 is behind us. And uh, although it looks like we may have a few difficult months ahead of us, Whatever happens, may 2021 be a year full of opportunities to share Jesus with our community, Um, especially those from a Muslim background, that they might fall in love with the real Jesus, who is creator, judge and saviour. Let's pray together. The Lord Jesus, when he appeared to his disciples... He said to them, how foolish you are and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, who is the word, your word through whom all things came into being. We thank you that even though he is one day coming as judge, yet he is our saviour. And in him we have this beautiful, amazing hope of eternal life. Father, we pray for our community. We pray for those from the Muslim community especially that by your spirit you would graciously open their eyes to see and understand who Jesus is, so they might declare, in reality, I now love Jesus. Father, we pray in his name. Amen. Okay, we're going to sing.